Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. And he had sent Timothy back to check on the church to see how it was going. And Timothy came back with a great report about the church in Thessalonica. It was in the center of a, of a, a lot of pagan worship. There was a numerable among, uh, um, number of Jewish believers there. Um, but uh, when Timothy came back with his report, the por- report wasn't totally perfect. There were some problems in the church. There were some who had uh, felt like the coming of Jesus was so imminent that they refused to work. They quit their jobs and were kind of sponging off the wealthier Christians. Um, there were some, uh, because of all the idol war- worship that was in that time, there were some folks who were tempted into sexual immorality. Um, there were uh, some folks who were living in fear because they felt the, the return of Christ was so imminent that when their loved ones passed away and, they, and Jesus hadn't returned, they thought maybe their loved ones had missed out on something. So Paul has spent the previous chapters dealing with those issues and talking about those, those problems and also talking about the rapture and the return of Jesus Christ. Well, now in this last portion, it might be called his counsel on Christian living. Once I heard a man say the most important thing in relation to others is personal honesty. Once you learn to fake that, he added, everything else is easy. Many people, unfortunately, today seem to follow that philosophy. Possibly one of the most discouraging aspects of of the modern-day church is not so much that we've had moral collapse of some of our religious leaders. We've seen that in the last few years. But the low level of ethical behavior on the part of many Christians. There's been a change in the Christian community I can't explain. Believers who regularly go to church and profess to believe the Bible often seem to go along with the practices of the world around them, and they they hardly seem uh, conscious that what they're doing is unbiblical and really wrong. George Barna is a born-again Christian sociologist and founder and president of Barna Research Group. Uh, which studies the behaviors and attitudes of Christians and non-Christians. And there were some, he had a book called The Second Coming of the Church in which he revealed some of the things that he learned from his, his studies. And of those who have been divorced, born-again Christians ranked 27%, non-Christians 23%. Those who gave money to a homeless person or a poor person in the past year, born-again Christians gave 24%, non-Christians 34%. Those who took drugs or medication prescribed for depression in the past year, born-again Christians 7%, non-Christians 8%. Watched an X-rated movie in the past three months, born-again Christians 9%, non-Christians 16%. The current president, David Kinnaman, contends that research indicates a brand new kind of a new brand of morality has evolved in America. He insists that Christianity for the most part has been removed as the culture's moral norm and replaced with a new moral code. Next slide, please. He says there are six tenets to this new moral code. The new moral code says the best way of finding yourself is looking within yourself. Number two, people should not criticize someone else's life choices. Number three, to be, to, fulfill, to be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. Number four, the highest goal of life is to enjoy it as much as possible. 
Number five, people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. And number six, any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. Kinnaman asserts in a book called Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme, that more and more Americans inside and outside the church are pledging allegiance to this new morality of self-fulfillment. The highest good, according to our society, is finding yourself and then living by what's right for you. The polling expert declares there's a tremendous amount of individualism in today's society, and it's reflected in the church as well. Since more than 9 out of 10 Americans own at least one Bible, and 86% of, of these people call themselves Christian, you might expect people to pay homage to a deity described by, by the church. They ask in a, nation, a nationwide t uh, polling a sample of 1,012 people, these were adults, to describe the God they believe in. Here's the good news. Two out of three, 67%, said they believe that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe who rules the world today. The remaining one-third described their God as a total realization of personal or human potential, a state of higher consciousness that a person may reach. Some said everyone is God. There are many gods with a different power and different authority. And then some said there's no such thing as God. And the remaining 5% said they didn't know. So according to Barna, a third of Americans don't really believe in God at all. Now if the Apostle Paul were here today, he would be very concerned about this. To him, the mark of the true Christian faith is the changes in everything you do and say. It affects every area of your life. A Christian may, may no longer act as he did before he came to Christ. Remember earlier in our studies, we talked about the three pillars of what it really means to be a Christian. A personal relationship with Jesus, sound doctrine, and a changed life. It's very clear in Paul's letters, uh, he lays this out. And every letter he wrote ends with this pointed practical application to daily situations that you and I face. The, the truth that he sets out, almost every letter he ends in the same manner. The first letter of, uh, this letter of Thessalonians is no exception. The closing chapters of verse 5, which we now come to, are wonderful practical guidelines on how to live Christianity in, the, in three areas. First, how to act toward the leaders of the church. Number two, how to live with fellow believers, whether we're at home or work or wherever. And finally, how to live toward God and respond to the situations he puts you in. First, let's look at how to act toward the leadership of the church with verse 12. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And be at peace among yourself. The phrase there, those who are over you in the Lord, is really not a good translation. It reflects a relationship that Scripture everywhere else speaks against. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 23, 8, One is your master. All are your brothers. Christians are brothers. What's really being said here is respect those who labor among you and stand before you in the Lord. The apostle was referring to those who stand in front and lead the service, your pastor. 
there is no suggestion here of anyone being over anyone else. Tradition has caused this improper translation to be lost and through the years. What Paul's saying here is follow your leaders. There are three things which church members must do in regard to their leaders. First, he says to know them, recognize them, be aware of them, do not take them for granted. They are not there to respond to the whims of the board of the church or the vote of the congregation. The apostles saying, get to know your leaders, understand that they are people too, and do not ignore them. They have needs. Pray for them. Support them. Minister to them as they minister to you. Then secondly, he says, esteem them very highly in love. Value them, in other words. Understand that though they may have their own personal idiosyncrasies that may be hard to handle, I hear some pastors tell corny jokes. You know, <laughs> recognize that their work is important and they should be highly esteemed for the reason that they're here, for what they're doing. To esteem them very highly is not only to regard them as leaders, uh, valuable leaders, but also to express that in a particular manner. How well are they paid? Do they need our assistance with something, with the business of the church, with maintaining the church property? Do they need our help in teaching our children? Whatever it is, to esteem them very highly means that we support them, we uphold them in our prayer time, we remember to pray for them. And thirdly, he says, the apostle says, be at peace among yourselves. In the context of what is, he's talking about here, it's related to the instructions on how to treat our leaders. It suggests a deliberate refusal to create a faction over individual leaders in the church. Do not group around one leader or individual at the expense of others in leadership. Do not play favorites and attack others. I pick up recycling from a little church. They recently had an, a problem like this. They got a new pastor. Well, two guys in the church heard a rumor that they didn't like about the new pastor, and so they wanted to unseat the pastor, and it caused a division. It's very unscriptural what they did. In 1 Timothy, Paul admonishes that no one may bring an accusation against an elder except by the word of two or three witnesses. So there has to be a careful, considered approach to that problem. Paul here gives three reasons why we should care for our leaders like this. First of all, these leaders are sent by the Lord. The apostle says, We beseech you, brethren, to respect those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord. Leaders have been appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Regardless of the human process by which they were chosen, what it means is that these people who are our pastors and our leaders are to be regarded as the Lord's men and women. He has sent them here among us. Number two, the second reason is they admonish you. The word is literally here translated to put in mind. They instruct you. They inspire you. They remind you of the truth. In today's world, we're hit with radio, TV, social media. All these things are, are pushing stuff in your mind to draw you away from God. Your pastor, your leader is the one voice 
who's saying, over here's the path. Don't go that way. Don't go that way. They are the ones that instruct us, that warn us. And I know sometimes that's not a pleasant thing to warn us when we're wrong and to point out folly. They help keep our feet on the right path. And thirdly, Paul says the reason we should esteem our leaders is that they labor among us. They work hard. They spend hours in difficult and stressful work. We're not aware of the problems that folks bring to a pastor because most of us fake it, like I said in the beginning. When we ask each other, how are you doing? It's, oh, I'm fine, and inside we're breaking apart. But the pastor hears that breaking apart side. And if you think your problems are a lot, try handling the problems of a hundred people or a hundred families. And carrying that in confidence, keeping that in confidence, and praying about that before the Lord. We're not aware of all the things that a pastor and his wife go through. Contrary to what some people think, it's not true that pastors only work one day a week. The ministry is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job, as Pastor Bill can surely tell you. You get those calls in the night to ask for prayer, those situations. Next slide. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good among yourselves and all men. The apostle points out first here a special behavior toward three distinct types of people, the unruly, the feeble-minded, and the weak. Warn the unruly, he says. The word is literally here the disorderly, those who get out of the step with the rest of the church. In Thessalonica, he meant those people who he had referred to earlier we talked about who had quit working because they expected the Lord to come at any moment. They were living off the gifts of others and were not willing to work and support themselves. Admonish them, says the apostle. Tell them to mend their ways. Do not let them go on like that. He does not mean this in a mean-spirited way, but to point out to them that this kind of behavior is unacceptable. Now, today we've got a movement in the church where folks... They use that famous line, oh, don't judge me. Well, the Bible says we are going to judge angels someday, and it's our responsibility to discern truth from darkness. And it is our duty as Christians, and especially the pastor. There are some people today, churches are accepting things that the Bible explicitly prohibits. But in, in the New Age uh, PC correct world, there are churches that are accepting behavior that is totally unbiblical. And that's not really love, is it? Because you know what? Those people are going to end up in hell. It's not love to let people continue to live in sin. It's not love to not confront them. Not in a, in a harsh or, or mean-spirited way, but with the love of Jesus. Just like he did the woman at the well. He didn't come out and say, Hey, woman, you're a, you're a, you're a man-chaser. You've had all these men. But he gradually worked his way around to deal with her sin and point her to the true light. The second thing Paul says here is to encourage the feeble-minded. That might be better translated faint-hearted. Um, 
It's a person who feels inadequate or ungifted. We could call them the introverts among us. Help them find their place, the apostle says here. This is addressed to, to everybody, people who feel out of it, who don't think they belong and cannot contribute anything. They must be helped to find their place because they have a place in the body of Christ. In the wonderful picture of the body at work in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, The ear cannot say, because I am not the eye, I'm not part of the body. No, Paul says, even if it says that, that does not make it any less a part of the body in 1 Corinthians 12, 16. There are people who feel that way. They think, I cannot do anything. I don't have any gifts. What am I supposed to do? We are to help each other find our place and give them something to do and encourage them in the work that they are doing. Then finally, Paul says, support the weak ones. This means especially uh, those who Romans 14 describes as being weak in the faith, those who do not know very much about the doctrine of the Christian life, those who have not learned the truth that sets them free and need extra help. Perhaps they're not sure of their salvation. Perhaps they feel guilty about their past sinful life and don't sense that they've really been forgiven by God yet. Whatever it may be, the word is to help them, to hold them fast. That demands a little extra time on our part. That might mean, you know, even though we don't feel like it, we take them out to lunch. We give them a phone call. We say, hey, let's go do something that you have in common. Maybe, maybe fish or hunt or play golf or go to the shooting range or whatever it might be that we encourage them, and as we encourage them, we drop those little pearls about what the Bible tells us and teaches us. This is addressed to us all. We're all to watch out for one another like this. And Calvary Chapel does that. I was so proud of our church with, with the current situation and the tragedy we had. Three special attitudes, Paul says, are required for us to be able to pull this off. First, we have to be patient with them all. Boy, that's a biggie, isn't it? Be patient with them all. Second, see that none of you repays evil for evil. And third, do good to one another and to all. Patience is the willingness to keep trying over and over and over again. And boy, that was hard for me. I've got an adopted daughter that has lost two cars, a mobile home, thousands of dollars, been in drugs, alcohol. And I get to a point and I say, okay, that's it. No more. Then I get the phone call. And that little voice inside of me says, one more time. One more time. You see, our patience sometimes runs out, but God's never does. Remember how patient God is with you? Remember? A willingness to keep trying over and over and over. What's helped me with this is I remember, I, 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 I look at it this way. This stuff's not mine anyway. It's God's. And if he asks me to give it away, I will. I've given away $1,800 guitar. I've given away cars. I'm not bragging on myself. I'm saying that's what God has influenced me to do that's not me that's him 
Patience is the willingness to keep trying over and over. Non-retaliation part here, not rendering evil for evil, means that we don't strike back or to get even when someone may have hurt you or taken advantage of you in the process of you helping them. And let me tell you, that's going to happen. The devil will see to it that if you're doing this uh, type of work and you're loving people and you're extending yourself and you're helping people somebody's going to take advantage of you. It's going to happen. The devil will see to it. You know why? Because he wants you to get a little wounded spirit and, and pucker up and cry and say, well, I'm not sticking my neck out again. That's exactly what's going to happen. So be careful. Paul says we don't strike back, even though they may have taken advantage of us. Helpfulness is a continual attempt to better a situation, to be part of the solution and not a part of the problem. Next slide. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In the last section of this chapter, we find instructions on how to behave toward God. First of all, be joyful. Rejoice always. The word might ought to actually be translated, be cheerful. Do not let things bring you down. Society is filled with despair and gloom. But a Christian has an inner resource. We, have, uh, we can obey the word of James who said, Count it all joy, my brethren, that you encounter various trials and temptations. Do not take it as an attack upon yourself. Don't moan and groan and say, What have I done to deserve this sort of thing? But rejoice. Because temptations and trials are good for you. Trials make you grow up. They make you face yourself and learn things about yourself that you didn't know. That's what James goes on to say. He says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing in James 1, 4. Second Paul says to be prayerful. Pray constantly. That's the method of drawing on this inner source of strength that God provides. We have not because we ask not. Sometimes God allows all the things that, that you know, are our strengths, you know. I don't know what mine are because I don't think I have any, but I'm kind of like the other person there. But, you know, some people are so strong, God allows all those things to be removed from our life and fail so that we learn to trust and rest in Him so that we discover he is El Shaddai, the God who is enough, instead of resting on our strength. Then third, he says, be thankful. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, why be thankful? We think when things are going bad, man, how can I be thankful? Because when you're faced with a trial, you're being given an opportunity to glorify God. Think about that. If you never face trials or pressures, how would anyone ever see that you have an invisible means of support, that you have a reliable source of strength that others don't know anything about? These are the opportunities God gives us, so be thankful. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. He is our righteousness, He is our holiness, He is our peace. When the early Christian believers leaders were arrested by the Sanhedrin, they were beaten for their faith. 
but they left the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to bear suffering for his name. That is thoroughly a Christian attitude, and that is how we ought to face our trials. Notice how the apostle underlines this. This is the will of God for you. This is the will of God not to make a dramatic display or some powerful gift or, uh, that's going to attract attention. It's the quiet response that you make to daily trials and circumstances in which you find yourself. Twice in this letter now, we've had this phrase, it is the will of God. It happened first in chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul said, This is the will of God for you, that you know how to preserve your own body in moral purity. That's the will for your body, that you don't engage in sexual immorality. But here's the will of God for your spirit, your inner life, that you give thanks in all circumstances. If you want to do the will of God, there are the two areas where his will is clearly set out for you. Moral purity and continual thanksgiving in your spirit. The next section deals with how to react toward the God guidance that God gives to you. Next slide, please. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesying. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Two simple things here. Don't ignore the Spirit's prompting and do not despise the Scripture's wisdom. The Scripture's prompting always comes in two areas. He's always saying, stop doing what you're doing that's wrong. Start doing what you know is right. If you're a Christian, you're familiar with this inner feeling that says God wants you to do something or God wants you to stop doing something. We all have felt this inner guidance. What the apostle's saying here is give in to those feelings. When the Spirit prompts you to show love to somebody, do it. Don't hold back. I'll tell you a little story. Years and years ago when I was first saved, we went to Parisburg to get our hair done. My wife would get hers done, and I'd get my hair cut by this guy. And this guy was kind of loud, and and he would use foul language. And, and I, I would sit and get my hair cut, and I wouldn't say anything. And I got home from one of those times, and I felt this awful conviction. The Lord spoke to me and said, you didn't, you didn't share me with him. You didn't tell him about me. And it, I tried to pray it off. I tried to shake it off. It was an inner voice that I just couldn't put away. So finally, I called him. And I testified to him over the phone. And I told him about Jesus. And that Jesus could save him. And take away his sin. That he was the only way to heaven. And I shared the gospel with him. And then I had peace. A few days later, he was dead. There have been times when I've cruised down the road and maybe the weather's bad and passed somebody rain on the road and it's raining and that inner voice has said, turn around and pick them up. God speaks to us if you'll listen. He'll speak to those who listen. He'll talk to you. So when the Spirit prompts you to do something, Paul says, don't quench that Spirit. Do it. Don't hold back. Then secondly, he says, don't ignore the wisdom that's in your Bible. Don't despise prophesying. Unfortunately, because of certain cultic tendencies in our world today, we think prophesying is some kind of special power to predict the future either for ourselves individually or for the world at large. 
But prophesying was not that. Dr. F.F. F. Bruce uh, declared, he's one of the great expositors of our day. He says that prophesying is declaring the mind of God in the power of the Spirit. In those early days before the New Testament were, was written, this was done orally. Prophets made the mind, uh, spoke the mind of the Spirit in an assembly. Prophesying today has become uh, what we call expository preaching and teaching. That's what I'm doing right now. It's opening the mind of God from the Word of God. Do not despise that, the Apostle says. That the wisdom, the, the wisdom of God is telling you how to act how to think, how to order your life. Why? Because you can avoid countless heartaches, headaches, and misery. Don't treat it lightly. But then the apostle adds, test it. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. It's easy to imitate this. There's a lot of slick-dressed, smooth-talking, nice, mellow-voiced people who imitate this. Anyone can stand up with a, and do that. And say, this is the word of the Lord. But we we got to learn to test what is said from what has already been revealed. And where has it been revealed? In the Bible. Paul uh, commended the Bereans for this, saying that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all readiness of heart and searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so in Acts 17.11. Test it. That's what Paul's saying here. People on every side are telling us what God wants us to do. But there's much counterfeit in that today. Test what is said. They tell me that bank tellers have to learn to distinguish counterfeit money from real money. And I would have thought that they would studied counterfeit money. But they tell me that they don't handle fake money. They handle the, the genuine article. And they're so familiar with it that when a counterfeit comes along, it's so obvious to them that they know it's not real. Same here. James says, study to show yourself approved of God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. Jesus said, know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Next slide. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray your whole spirit, body, soul, and body be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Simply recognize that God is able to minister to the whole man, not just part of you, but your spirit, your soul, your body. He can touch you in all those areas. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he said, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. You can rest on his faithfulness. He will do it. You know, so many times I see where I've gotten off track, but God didn't get off track, and he won't let you get off track. Choose to obey, and he will give you the power to perform, but he won't give you the power to perform until you make the choice to obey. And always remember the end is it's unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Although this letter has been... Uh, We've seen, all through it, we've seen this great hope set before us. The main thing is, hey, guys, we might be suffering a little bit here, but Jesus is coming. He is coming. All this is going to pass away, and he's going to have a kingdom that's going to last for an eternity. There's going to be no tears. There's no sickness, no sadness, no sorrow. 
It's going to be rejoicing in the presence of God for all eternity. There's a limited time of testing to go through, and it can't go on forever. One lifetime is actually pretty short. I often think of the motto that we used to say earlier when I was a young Christian. We used to be in our homes and our churches. We used to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Paul says, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul ends with his letter requesting prayer for himself, reminding us that we need one another, reminding us that even this great man of God who was taken to the third heaven had an encounter with Jesus on Damascus Road, was beaten and brutalized and endured all those things, he still he still coveted prayer from the church. And so we should pray for our leaders. We should pray for one another. We should support one another. These are practical guidelines for Christian living. And, you know, it's not hard. It's not hard. God has... He woos us with his spirit. He speaks to us. He guides us. We just have to trust and obey. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your nurture of the body. We ask that you, Holy Spirit, that you would come. Make these words alive. Make them burn in our hearts and in our minds. Encourage us. uh, Lift us up. Minister to your people. And may we leave this place saying, this was a great day to be in the house of the Lord. Bless us, Father, throughout the rest of the service and as we go our separate ways at the end of this service. In Jesus' name.